Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. We have been led in wonderful worship today in preparation for the study of God's Word. Let me invite you to take your Bible and join me in the book of Revelation, the fifth chapter. Revelation chapter 5, we'll give our attention to verses 8 through 10. The title this morning is The Vision of the Exalted Lamb Realized in the Life of Missionary James Fraser Among the Lisu People of China. A command has been given. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. It has not been obeyed. More than half the people in the world have never yet heard the gospel. What are we to say to this? Surely it concerns us Christians very seriously, for we are the people who are responsible. If our master returned today to find millions of people unevangelized, and looked as, of course, he would look to us for an explanation. I cannot imagine what explanation we should have to give. Of one thing I am certain, that most of the excuses we are accustomed to make with such good conscience, now we should be wholly ashamed of them. It was those words that were written by a missionary in China in a little booklet entitled, Do Not Say, that compelled a man by the name of James Fraser, who lived from 1886 to 1938, a man who was an accomplished concert pianist and honor student in engineering, to flee England and run to China where he would serve the Lord for more than 30 years among the Lisu people group, that they might indeed exalt the Lamb, the Lord Jesus, who, as verse 9 says, has redeemed us to God by His blood. You see, after reading that little booklet, James Frazier could not escape the words of indictment that it contained. It was in 1906. He was just 20 years old. And by the way, it was true that in 1906, half the world's population had never heard the gospel. The year is now 2009, and it is still true. Half the world's population, 3.4 billion people, have still yet to hear clearly and accurately the gospel of Jesus Christ. The needs of the nation were too great for him to simply close the booklet and move on. The realities of eternity were so great he could not turn a deaf ear. In fact, once when considering the lostness of the people God sent him to reach, he wrote, The whole plain is without the light of the gospel. I believe God would be glorified by even one witness to his name amid the perishing thousands. It does seem a terrible thing that so few are offering for the mission field. I can't help feeling that there is something wrong somewhere. Surely God must be wanting His people to go forward. Does not the Master's last command still hold good? 
And it was this passion that sent James Frazier to China. He would be interestingly rejected twice in his application for the mission board, and yet he would serve there for 30 30 years of faithful ministry for King Jesus. In fact, it's interesting to note that as he applied for a third time, uh, probably expecting again to be rejected, he simply said, well, I'm going there anyway, because I know I've been sent by God. And it was this kind of passion found in this simple man from England that would sustain him through kidnapping, multiple robberies, leg ulcers, lice, rats, malaria, total exhaustion, and mental and spiritual depression that nearly drove him to suicide. He was a very normal, common man, just like you and just like me. In fact, his daughter, Ellen Crossman would write this in her biography about her father. He was assailed by deep and treacherous doubts. Yea, hath God said? The question came to him again and again as clearly as it came at the dawn of time. Your prayers are not being answered, are they? No one wants to hear your message. The few who first believed have gone back, haven't they? You see, it doesn't work. You should never have stayed in this area on such a fool's errand. You've been in China five years and there's not much to show for it, is there? You thought you were called to be a missionary. It was pure imagination. You'd better leave it all. Go back and admit it was a big mistake. Day after day and night after night, he wrestled with doubt and suicidal despair. Suicidal, not once. But several times he stared over the dark ravine into the abyss. Why not end it all? The powers of darkness had him isolated. If they could get him now, they could put an end to the work. And yet, James Frazier overcame, as Revelation 12:11 teaches, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of his testimony, and he did not love his life even in the face of death. He persevered, and the Lamb who sits upon the throne in heaven honored this faithful servant of his. What can you and I learn this morning from the life of James Frazier as we also delve into this marvelous text of Revelation chapter 5, verses 8 through 10? It's very interesting that Eric, a moment ago, not knowing anything about the content of my message, emphasized the importance of prayer, both at home and on the field, for effective missionary service. If anything could be said about James Frazier, it would be that he was a prayer missionary. And so what is it that we can learn this morning that I pray will encourage us, challenge us, and indeed, for many of you, compel you to follow in his footsteps and go to the hard places that those who have never heard might hear the wonderful gospel of King Jesus. Number one, the prayers of the saints contribute to the redeeming of the nations. Verse 8 is filled with drama. We see in chapter 5 that the Lamb who has been slain is now standing. And now in verse 7 he does an unprecedented thing. He came and he took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. He and he alone is worthy to approach the throne. He and he alone is worthy to take the scroll which contains the remainder of the book of Revelation, to take it from the hand of God the Father who sits on the throne. But when that happens, all heaven breaks loose in glorious, wonderful praise and worship. Verse 8, 
Now, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, the four living creatures are angelic beings of worship. They have both the characteristics of the seraphim and the cherubim. The four uh, living creatures and the 24 elders, I believe they represent the redeemed of all the ages. The four living creatures and the 24 elders, they fell down before the Lamb. Now note, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. The harp, the instrument of praise. But the golden bowls of incense, this sweet-smelling aroma, are described as the prayers of the saints. Now, I know that you're like me. Sometimes you pray and you wonder, is God really listening? Or maybe you recognize that God is always listening, but for some reason there's a problem on your end and the prayers hit the ceiling and they go no higher. It is comforting for me to know that some of the greatest saints of God throughout history likewise experienced that same concern and that same kind of consternation when it came to their prayer life. Listen to what James Frazier said, and I quote, I suppose we have most of us had such experiences. We have prayed and prayed and prayed and no answer has come. The heavens above us have been as brass. Yes, blessed brass. If it has taught us to sink a little more of this ever-present self of ours into the cross of Christ. You see, believing prayer will drive us down. Even as they go up, and yes, they are heard. The text says they're being collected in heaven as a pleasant aroma of worship to our God. And I believe because of the context. And what we will read in verse 9 and verse 10, it seems apparent to me that the prayer offered for the salvation of the nations is particularly the kind of prayer that pleases our God. As I said a moment ago, it would not be a stretch to describe James Frazier as a prayer missionary. He was born in England in 1886. He was one of six children from a broken home. He would not even marry until the age of 43 and tragically would die suddenly at the age of 52. And yet for years, his godly mother prayed that at least one of her children would become a missionary. And God heard her prayer. In fact, James Frazier would say that it was his prayers of his mother that pushed him to the mission field. In fact, his mother would say this, I could not pour out the ointment of Jesus' blessed feet as Mary did, but I gave him my boy. And God heard her prayer. God answered her prayer. and God made her son a missionary. In fact, it was the prayers of his mother. It was the prayers of a prayer circle back in England. And it was the own prayers of his own and others around him offered on the mission field that sustained this man in a very difficult assignment in the western southern part of China there along the Himalayan mountains. In fact, his prayer life so characterized his life, you can't understand James Frazier apart from prayer. Listen, for example, to what he said in terms of his prayer as he had a burden for the lost. I was very much led out in prayer for these people right from the beginning. Something seemed to draw me to them, and the desire of my heart grew until it became a burden that God would give us hundreds of converts among the Lisu of our western district. 
In a letter that he wrote back to England requesting prayer partners, solid, lasting missionary work is done on our knees. What I covet more than anything else is earnest, believing prayer. And I write to ask you to continue to put up much prayer for me and the work here. I will not labor the point. You will see from what I am saying that I am not asking you just to give us help in prayer as a sort of sideline. But I am trying to roll the main responsibility of the prayer warfare on you. I want you to take the burden of these people upon your shoulders. I want you to wrestle with God for them. He would talk about the necessity of and the power of prayer in his own life. Again, I'm feeling more and more that is, after all, just the prayers of God's people that call down blessings upon the work, whether they are directly engaged in it or not. Paul may plant Apollo's water, but it is God who gives the increase. And this increase can be brought down from heaven by believing prayer. We are, as it were, God's agents used by Him to do His work, not ours. We do our part and then can only look to Him with others for His blessing. If this is so, then Christians at home can do as much for foreign missions as those actually on the field. I believe it will only be known on the last day how much has been accomplished in missionary work by the prayers of earnest believers at home. And this surely is the heart of the problem. In other words, brothers and sisters, we can give and we should give and we will give. And we can go and we should go and more should be going. But nothing will come to fruition for the greater glory of God apart from the intercessory prayers of His people there and also here at home. You and I know many people who were God to give them the help would go just like that. They can't go, but they can pray. And thus Fraser would say, if I am sure of anything, it is that your prayers have made a very real difference to my life and service. Spiritual warfare. Eric alluded to that a moment ago before he prayed. And when you go into a country or when you go to a people group that has been immersed in demonology and satanic worship and false religion for century after century after century, there is a spiritual darkness that will never be overcome apart from believing prayer on the part of God's people. Listen again to what Frazier said. One of the temptations in the spirit... Warfare is when your body begins to flag to say, I must give up. Instead of casting yourself upon God that raised the dead and can quicken the mortal body to endure and triumph in and through all things. Ephesians 6.10 Oh, how we need strength for often we can hardly hold our ground. In every battle, there are crucial spots. So get near. And stay near to your divine chief until he turns and points them out. And at those points, face and force the fight. And though the conflict be keen, though defeat seem certain, though the battle should continue for hours, for days, for months, even for years, yet hold on, hold on. For to such Jeremiah 1.19 is written, They shall fight against thee, but they shall not prevail against thee, for I am with thee to deliver thee. 
Indeed, the aim of satanic power is to cut off communication with God. To accomplish this aim, he deludes the soul with a sense of defeat, covers him with a thick cloud of darkness, depresses and oppresses the spirit, which in turn hinders prayers and leads to unbelief, thus destroying all power instead of seeing Hebrews chapter 11. He continues, I seem distinctly led to fight against principalities and powers for middle village. Have faith for the conversion of that place and pray as a kind of bugle call for the host of heaven to come down and fight for me. Fight for me against the powers of darkness holding these two old men who are hindering their village and perhaps three others from turning to Christ. Have a good time of fighting prayer. Then sleep in much peace of mind. He continues, The whole cause of my defeat these two days is weakness of spirit. Under these conditions, any test you take fails to work. The spirit must be continually maintained in strength. How? By unceasing prayer, especially against the powers of darkness. All I've learned of other aspects of this victory life is useless without this. You say, what was the result of such a prayer life in this man, James Frazier? As I mentioned earlier, many times he was seriously ill, nearly dying. Kidnapped, robbed, depressed. In fact, he nearly drowned in a monsoon mudslide, which did take the life of the horse he was riding. He worked day after day, week after week, month after month among a demon-worshipping people, seeing basically no results. And yet it was this prayer life of faith in the God who answers prayer that could keep him in the fight and lead him to write this. Traveling in a fierce blizzard, you arrive at the end of the day, cold, hungry, and tired, not to find a nice, clean room waiting for you, a warm bath, a warm fire, a smile of welcome, and a nice meal. No, you splash along the slushy street from dismal inn to dismal inn. And you get suspicious stares. Finally, you practically force your way into an end. It is pitch dark. The floor is a mess. There is no furniture but a mud platform, no light, no warmth. You and your multier make a meal of plain boiled rice. But next morning, you get out again into your blue skies and snow mountains and forget all the previous night's troubles. And he was able to do that because people were undergirding him with prayer, both at home and around the world. Understand, brothers, understand, sisters, the prayers of the saints do contribute to the redeeming of the nations. Number two, the blood of Christ has purchased the salvation of the nations. Verse 9 contains what can be called a great song of redemption. The text says it is a new song, meaning a new kind of song made possible by the slaughtered lamb that is now standing as we saw in verse 6. He is alone worthy, a word that occurs four times in chapter 5, to take the scroll from God the Father who sits on the throne. The question naturally arises, why is he worthy? Four reasons are given. Number one, you were slain, verse 9. Number two, you redeemed us to God by your blood, verse 9. Number three, you have made us kings and priests to our God, verse 10. And number four, those you have redeemed will reign with you on the earth. 
We sang about it a moment ago. Redeemed by His blood. Those of you that are new students here at the seminary are going to quickly learn that the idea of the blood of Christ is not a popular idea across the Christian world. It is certainly not warmly embraced by the more liberal in terms of their theological orientation. A a dead Galilean Jew nailed to a cross, bleeding all over the place, is the means whereby God redeems the nations. Are you kidding me? Are you serious? That's the view of a feminist theologian by the name of Dolores Williams, who teaches at Union Theological Seminary in New York. She says, I quote, I don't think we need a theory of atonement at all. I don't think we need folks hanging on crosses and blood dripping and weird stuff. Think about Virginia Mollencott, also a theologian of the more radical tradition, who says that the death of Jesus was nothing less than the ultimate in child abuse. God is to be viewed as an abusive parent and Jesus as an obedient and abused child. Or consider the right Reverend Jeffrey John of the Church of England, who calls the bloody atonement of Christ both repulsive and insane. In fact, let me quote him and let him speak for himself. The explanation I was given went something like this. God was very angry with us for our sins. And because he is a just God, our sin had to be punished. But instead of punishing us, he sent his son Jesus as a substitute to suffer and die in our place. The blood of Jesus paid the price of our sins. And because of him, God stopped being angry with us. In other words, Jesus took the rap and we got forgiven, provided we said we believe in him. Well, I don't know about you, but even at the age of 10, I thought this explanation was pretty repulsive as well as nonsensical. What sort of God was this? Getting so angry with the world and the people he created and then to calm himself down, demanding the blood of his own son. And anyway... Why should should God forgive us through punishing someone else? It was worse than illogical. It was insane. It made God sound like a psychopath. If any human being behaved like that, we'd say they were a monster. Well, I haven't changed my mind since that explanation of the cross doesn't work. Though sadly, it's the one that's still all too often preached. It just doesn't make sense to talk about a nice Jesus down here placating the wrath of a nasty, nasty, angry Father God in heaven. And tragically, there's even a growing number of so-called evangelicals that are tracking in this same heretical, blasphemous direction. And yet, praise God, James Frazier did not embrace that kind of theology. In fact, as he thought about the cross, he reflected upon its multifaceted glory. And he said this again in terms of gaining victory in spiritual warfare. I read The Overcomer over and over. What it showed me was the deliverance from the power of the evil one comes through definite resistance on the grounds of the cross. Preaching the gospel, he said, I first went through the Acts of the Apostles and some other passages comparing them with a view to finding out the actual gospel we were bidden to preach. The result was very instructive to me. I had never imagined the gospel was so simple. 
<clears throat> why Peter and Paul both preached the gospel in words which would not take one minute to say. And I found out that there are just four things which seem to be essential in preaching the gospel. Number one, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Number two, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Most important of all, the gospel's never preached without this being brought in. Number three, exhortation to hearers to repent of their sin. And number four, promise to all who believe on Jesus Christ that they will receive the remission of their sins. He then says, beyond these four points, <clears throat> others are mentioned occasionally, but they are not many. In teaching Christians, it is quite another matter to them. We are able to declare the whole counsel of God as far as they can receive it, but the gospel as preached to the unsaved is as simple as it could be. I should not care to take the responsibility of preaching another gospel. The power of the cross. Quote, The ground of the cross was what brought me light. For I found that it worked. I felt like a man perishing of thirst to whom some beautiful, clear, cold water had begun to flow. I have no confidence in anything but the gospel of Calvary to uplift these needy people. Quite conscious of my mother's prayers. I'm sure she is praying for me. Splendid time of prayer alone in my room enabled me to get to the cross and remain there. Have peace and rest of spirit. Again, very definitely and decidedly take my stand on 1 John 1, 7. Jesus Christ, my cleanser from all sin, full of peace and blessing all the rest of the day. The gospel of a broken heart begins the ministry of bleeding hearts. As soon as we cease to bleed, we cease to bless. We must bleed if we would be ministers of the saving blood. And the blood of Christ has purchased the salvation of the nations. Number three, the redeemed served as a kingdom of priests in reaching the nations. The exalted lamb, he saved us to serve him. He redeemed us to serve him. In fact, the text says that we will reign with him and that we will serve as priests to our God. Now, what does a priest do? A priest represents God to man and man to God. And the Bible makes it clear. Everyone in this room today who has been purchased by the blood of Christ is a priest. You have direct access to God, but not just to God, but you now are something of a, of a mediator. Not in the way that Jesus is, but you are indeed a design, a divine, designly divine representative of our King to the lost nations who need also to be redeemed by His blood. And again, I would submit to you that James Fraser was a marvelous priest of God to man. Listen again to what he said in the context of serving our Lord. I often think it is the very, very few who are prepared by rigorous self-discipline. Not a very popular thing nowadays for a lifetime of great usefulness. James Frazier on one occasion found a man lying beside the road like um, in the store of the Good Samaritan. People continually passed him by, passed him by, passed him by. Frazier picked him up, put him on his back, 
and carried him for six miles to the nearest city, and indeed it saved the man's life. Watching him, a Lisu believer, excuse me, a Burmese man by the name of Chang was so moved by what he saw in the service for King Jesus of this man, he gave his life to Christ. Now, some of the folks there and even some of the fellow missionaries said that James Fraser was strange. They said that he was odd. They said he was eccentric. I would argue he was very Christ-like. In fact, why did he serve like this? Why would he, at a moment's notice, stop whatever he was doing to serve others? Listen to what he says here. And don't miss this. This is very, very, very powerful. Quote, It is all if and when. I believe the devil is fond of those conjunctions. The plain truth is that the Scriptures never teach us to wait for opportunities of service, but to serve in just the things that lie next to our hands. The Lord bids us work, watch, and pray, but Satan suggests, wait. Wait until a good opportunity for working, watching, and praying presents itself. And needless to say, this opportunity is always in the future. Since the things that lie in our immediate path have been ordered of God, who shall say that one kind of work is more important and sacred than another? I believe it is no more necessary to be faithful, one says it reverently, in preaching the gospel than in washing up dishes. It is not for us in any case to choose our work. And if God has chosen it for us, hadn't we better go straight ahead and do it without waiting for anything greater, better, or nobler? It's a very good word for seminary students. Who will, when I get out of here, I'll serve the Lord well. No, he says you serve the Lord well right now. No matter where you are, no matter what you do, and I say this for no pat on the back, but my first job when I was in Bible college was I was a table waiter and a dishwasher. I then got promoted to being a janitor. And so um, that's how I began. And the fact of the matter is, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, right then and right there, you do it to the glory of God. You see, it was this kind of heart and this state of mind that kept him going. Listen to how he described so honestly his experience. January the 16th, not a single one came to service in the morning. January 18th, Abraham was called out by God and went in blind faith. When he got to the land of promise, he found nothing but a famine, much like me with the Lisu these two years. February the 3rd, depressed after defeat this morning from which no Real recovery all day. February the 4th, no meal until 2 p.m. Thoroughly depressed about the state of work in Tansha. No one to count upon in matters demanding an earnest spirit. The evil one seems to have the upper hand in me today. So did he quit? No. Did he go back home? No. He trusted in the God who is faithful. February the 5th, yesterday's attack of depression and defeat almost got over, but not quite. Such times are not easy to recover from. I find the majority of Christians have gone in for whiskey drinking. The outlook here in Tansha at present seems less hopeful than at any time since I first set foot in the place. I am not, however, taking the black, despondent view I took yesterday. The opposition will not be overcome by reasoning or by pleading, but chiefly steady, persistent prayer. 
The men need not be dealt with. It is a heartbreaking job trying to deal with a least supersessed by spirit of fear. The men will not be dealt with, but the powers of darkness need to be fought. I am now setting my face like flint. If the work seems to feign, then pray. If service, etc. falls flat, then pray still more. If months slip by with little or no result, then pray still more and get others to help you. February the 6th. B and Ba announced that they will become Christians if their parents will allow them. Four young men say they will follow Christ whatever happens. Tuesday, February the 8th, Mola P turns Christian in the morning. Guba and T all at his house, now full of joy and praise. Brothers and sisters, understand something. He was on the field for five years before what is called the breakthrough took place. Like Carrie and like Judson, who were on the field for seven years before they had a single convert. They had to stay and work, stay and work, stay and work. But because they stayed and were faithful, the blessings of heaven came down. James Frazier got to the end of his life and did not have to look to heaven and say, Oh my God. I played the fool and I lived a wasted life. How do we conclude then about James Frazier? He died suddenly at the age of 52. I, by the way, am 52. His daughter recorded his death with these words. This is what God gave him a few days before he died in a conversation with his wife. You know, Roxy, James said one day up in the hills, Even when I'm gone, I don't think my work in Yunnan will be finished. She was startled a few days later when he said, Mr. Payne is passing through in two weeks' time. I have some money here for him. If anything happens to me, you'll know where it is. But I don't understand, she said. He responded, I just thought I'd let you know. He talked a lot these days about the children's future and about the baby expected their third before the end of the year. It was September already. The event was not too far off. On Wednesday, September the 21st, James had a headache. He finished answering some important letters and then played the little organ for a while before going to bed. By the next morning, his headache was severe. He sent runners at once to get someone to be with Roxy. James had gone down with malignant cerebral malaria. There was no appropriate medicine in Paoshan. It was not long before he lost consciousness, and for two days the fever intensified. By Saturday evening, he was strangely quiet. It was a long night for Roxy, James in and out of delirium. The Chinese doctor and nurses hurrying up and down the stairs, the child crying in the darkness. When the sun rose on September the 25th, 1938, James had gone. It was a shock to his colleagues. He was only 52. He seemed strong and healthy. They found the news hard to believe, but for Roxy, the whole world was reeling. Isabel Kuhn wrote to her three days later, The very thought of you makes my hand tremble so, and the tears come so that I do not know how I can write. The least who have just walked in with their unbelievable message, times like this, and when we just have to bear our face to the tempest and go on without seeing clearly, without understanding, without anything but naked faith. How do we summarize this man? Stuart Simpson, an actor who portrays James Frazier in the short documentary Breakthrough, called him one of the most successful Christian missionaries 
in East Asia in modern times. His biographer said of him, the young man handed over not the latch key, but the master key of his whole being. As I mentioned a moment ago, it would be five plus years before he uh, experienced what is called the breakthrough. But within, look at this, within four months, 600 Lisu representing 129 families turned to faith in Christ. Revival broke out, spreading from village to village, from mountain to mountain. By 1918, ten years into the work, 60,000 believers had been baptized. Today, there are more than 300,000 Lisu Christians in western China, thousands more in Myanmar and Thailand. James Fraser devised the first written script for the Lisu people. It was officially recognized by the Chinese government in 1992. He would lead the way in translating the New Testament into Lisu. His wife would later say of this man's great humility, before they married, never once did he tell me the way he had been used among the Lisu. I'm past my time, and so let me just close in this way. Last night I received an email from one of our missionaries in China. Hi, Danny. We live and work east where James Fraser worked in Yunnan province. For the last six years or so, we have partnered with Lisu believers to plant churches among the unreached people groups found in Yunnan. They have been tremendous partners in the gospel. I traveled to the Nuyan Valley where Fraser worked once or twice a year to spend time with these dear brothers and sisters to train them and teach in their Bible schools. They have sent out workers to other people groups and seen numerous indigenous new churches started. They have also begun reaching out to the Lisu around them who don't have churches in their villages. And as a result, they have started several new churches. For many years, their Christianity had become more cultural than that of faith. But it is great to see a revival beginning to happen. We are grateful for the work that Fraser did among the Lisu. We are definitely still seeing the fruit of his labor today. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this gifted servant of yours. Thirty years among a people that were enslaved to demonology. And yet today, more than 300,000 believers, and Lord, how many others were there brutally murdered by the communists when they took over? Most of the folks in this room today had never heard of James Frazier. But heaven knows his name very well. And Lord, may it be that each of us in this room will serve you not to receive the praise of men, but only to receive the praise of King Jesus, the exalted Lamb, who allows us the privilege of being used by Him to bring the nations to Himself. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern 
or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.